for a start is today to uh, Revelation 18. We pretty much got through this chapter last time, but I want to back up and make a point I'm not sure I made as I went through this. Continuing and identifying who the modern day Babylon is. Notice in Revelation 18.4, it says, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, I may have touched on this, but I don't remember for sure, but it came to mind this morning. If this great harlot is the Roman Catholic Church, how are you and I going to come out of her? Now, remember, the book of Revelation is addressed to the church. It is not addressed to physical Israel. Some physical Israelites are in the Roman Catholic Church and in her Protestant daughters. But this is not addressed to them. Many of the prophecies of the Old Testament are at least partially addressed to ancient, to uh, physical Israel, and partially addressed to the church, primarily and first to the church, secondly to the physical nation. But the, the book of Revelation has no such situation. It is a book addressed entirely to the church. Go back and read chapter 1 and do a review of the book and you will find that the church is the only thing mentioned through there. Physical Israel is not mentioned at all. So Revelation 18.4 is not addressed to the nation. It is addressed to the church. So whoever this harlot happens to be, we, the church, are commanded to come out of her. And I have never been a Catholic, nor shall I ever be a Catholic. So the chances of my coming out of the Catholic Church are pretty slim, and none are they not. That's a point I do not want to let slip by us in making definitions here. Now, as you will recall from last week, much of Revelation 17 certainly of 18, well, not so much 17, but almost all of 18, has to do with what? Economics, finance, money, of making nations rich. I want to read from an article that I read from Newsweek. This is the August 25th issue of Newsweek, a fairly well-respected news magazine in the United States. This one just came out. I got it in the mail yesterday, in fact. It's written by Robert J. Samuelson, and is in, it is entitled, A Crack-Up for World Trade? Question mark. And I'm quoting or reading from this. The global trading system is in trouble. This is in all capital letters. Mainly because it became over-dependent on big U.S. trade deficits. In other words, America has buying a whole, been buying a whole lot more than it has been selling. And they've liked that. They've become dependent on that. But Americans are getting to the point they are maxed out. It's hard for them to buy anymore. And yet the world keeps making stuff. And the more stuff they make, but they cannot sell, the more it creates problems for them. And their economies have become dependent upon Americans buying everything they make. 
From 1996 to 2002, the American trade deficit jumped from $191 billion to $485 billion. We Americans are buying vast amounts of foreign-made pots and pans, cars, CDs, and DVD players, bicycles, clocks, umbrellas, socks, and shoes. In 1996, the United States imported $1.31 of goods for every dollar it exported. Now the import figure is approaching $2. And let me put this in simple terms. Let's say you are a family and you earn $2,000 a month. And you spend $4,000 a month. And you do this month after month after month. That's what the United States is doing. That's rough figures. We sell a dollar, we buy two dollars. Do you think that would ever lead to financial trouble? America's eager consumers have long been the world's buyers of first and last resort. All these countries depend upon us to buy their goods to keep their economy going and their nation marching forward. Does this begin to sound like Revelation 18 at all? That this great harlot described here has made all nations rich with her merchandising, that the whole world depends upon our economy and upon our buying their goods. Now, what happens when you earn a dollar, spend two dollars, earn a dollar, spend two dollars? Over a period of time, you have what is called deficit spending increasing, don't you? Our deficit spending or, or trade deficits has jumped from 191 billion to 485 billion. It's more than two to one. It's changed that much since 1996. So it is not just static spend a dollar, I mean make a dollar, spend two dollars. We're getting to the point that it is increasing. Make a dollar, spend three dollars. Now, what happens to your family finances when you do that? You look around and you say, well, car payment's overdue, mortgage is overdue, we're getting months behind, we put it on credit cards, we hope we can make it up, and they charge 18 to 21% interest if you're late or anything else, plus penalties and so on and so forth. So you get all your credit cards maxed out. You've borrowed all the money you can there. You look around and you say, man, we're spending more than we're making. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? So, you go to the bank and you say, I have some equity in my house. I've been paying on this thing for 25 years, and uh, now I have $10,000 worth of equity, or something like that. Can I borrow some money to pay my bills? Why, sure you can. You will only have to pay on this kind of loan. You'll only have to pay 10% interest. We can handle that. So you borrow money, now you have no equity in car because you're upside down in it, you're upside down in your house, you're upside down in your credit cards. What are you going to do? 
bankruptcy is about your only, you've either got to earn a whole lot more money than you're spending for a long time, or you've got to declare bankruptcy. Just tell everybody, go away. I don't owe you anymore. That's your only out. What does the U.S. government do? Or let's say we buy a dollar's worth of goods from China. No, we sell them a dollar's worth and we buy back two dollars worth. Pretty soon, they have all this money of ours and we're out of money. We go to them and borrow our money. Well, it's not our money anymore. It's their money now. We borrow their money. That's what a U.S. Treasury bond is. It is a loan that the government takes out. If you buy a U.S. Treasury bond, the government says, I owe you that money. You, you gave it to me. Now I owe it to you, and I will pay you interest on it. 1% to 6%, depending on how long the bond is for. In other words, a bond is a binding. You are then bound. Our government is bound to pay that back. It's just like you going to the bank and asking for a loan. You are bound by your signature to pay that back. That's all a U.S. Treasury bond is. They borrow from you, from a corporation, or from a country, and say they will pay it back. As I think I told you last week, the Japanese recently bought $29 billion worth of government bonds. That is, to put it correctly, the United States borrowed $29 billion from the Japanese, and we've agreed to pay them interest on that. Now, they didn't loan us the money because they had a, a lot of money and just wanted to do it. They loaned us the money because they were afraid we were going under. And they, we owe them so much, they're afraid for us to go under. That's the reason a lot of people are buying U.S. Treasury bonds now. Not because of the advantage to them of the interest that is paid, they're afraid we're going under. Sometimes car dealers or banks will do that with businesses. They'll refinance them because they're afraid they'll go under and they'll lose everything. Now, what happens to you if you keep on this deficit spending in your family? Make 2000 spend 4000 Make 2000 spend 4000 You get behind on your car payments, your house payments, your land payments, your credit card payments, whatever you've spent it on, what do they do? They come and repossess your home and your car and your teeth. Well, maybe not your teeth. That's not a... There are some loans that are made without collateral. Credit card loans are one of them. Legally, these people to whom we owe, as a U.S. government, trillions of dollars can repossess us. They have a legal right and would be given that if it were come to come up in a world court. They would be given the right to come and repo America. Scary, isn't it? We now owe about $6 trillion. People ask me one day, well, what? Who do we owe all this money we're supposed to owe to? We sold U.S. Treasury bonds. That is, we borrowed money. 
and told people we'd pay it back in three years, five years, ten years, however long the bond was for. The loan. That's who we owe it to, whoever bought it. Not bought it, really, but loaned the money to us, when you understand what has actually occurred. The U.S. government is spending far more money every year than it takes in in taxes, so it has to borrow money from individuals, corporations, and countries. And they couldn't borrow enough, they couldn't sell enough bonds, so what did they do? They raided the Social Security system, they raided Medicaid, to whom everybody basically is paying in every month out of their salaries, so that they'll have something to live on when they retire. They have raided that, raped it, of those funds. It is now estimated that we would have to have 50% taxes for 200 years to make up for what was simply taken out of those two funds. Where is this money going? Basically overseas. That's where we're spending the money. We make a dollar off taxes, we spend two dollars overseas. That is, corporations spend it, Americans spend it for Chinese and Japanese goodies and widgets and things and cars. But then our government, the money that we've spent on a car, the government borrows back from Japan. So you may have the car, but the government owes the money for it. I can think you. I see. I think you can see. This is a recipe for absolute disaster. But it's made everybody else rich, hasn't it? I mean, I like that. When somebody will give me two dollars for every dollar I give them, I'll do that all day long. Anybody want to line up here and start? Every two dollars you give me, I'll give you a dollar back. Sound like a good deal? That's what we're doing as a country. Again, quoting, America's eager consumers have long been the world's buyers of first and last resort. We're their only hope. And if we go up in smoke, their economic, financial hopes go up in smoke. They're scared for us to fall, but they want to get rid of us. It's kind of a catch-22 that the world is in. It seems unlikely that U.S. trade deficits will increase by the 50 billion to 100 billion a year necessary for this to continue. In other words, how many Chinese widgets can we buy? How can we support the whole world, and for how long? before we simply run out of the capacity to do that. What happens when those lenders run out of money? In spite of all that we've bought from Japan and enriched her, they've had problems with their own government and changing some policies, and now they are in trouble. But we can only buy so many TVs and cars. A healthy trading system requires that countries be both eager exporters and importers. If nations don't spend what they earn abroad, or if weak economies make them weak importers, then the trading system will founder. That is today's problem, which has been masked by the huge U.S. deficits. In other words, 
we keep borrowing that money and spending it again. Borrowing it and spending it again. But we've reached the point that they're not going to longer going to buy our bonds and loan it to us for us to spend back. I think I can see Zephaniah 1 coming. The crash of the economic system. He says, where will future trade expansion come from? Europe seems a doubtful candidate. With feeble economic growth, it won't buy a lot more exports. Moreover, Europe often runs small current account surpluses, meaning that it sells more than it buys. Now, if I'm in business, I prefer that. Sell more than I buy. Latin America is in a similar position. Many big countries, like Argentina and Brazil, are so burdened by debt that their growth is hobbled and they strive for export surplus, earning precious dollars to repay their international loans. They already owe so much money that everything they can sell they use to pay loans or ask for bankruptcy clemency. As for Africa, it's so poor that it hardly matters in global trade. Well, he says, what about Asia? It ought to save the global trading system, but it may do just the opposite. You would think, with all that stuff they're selling us, that they would buy stuff back from us. What have we got that they want? They can make it all there. These countries are ferocious exporters. Japanese, Chinese, Taiwan, Hong Kong, they're ferocious exporters. They're not big buyers. Their people, unlike Americans, don't have consumer funds to spend. When you make pennies for making a pair of Nikes, you can't spend much on American products made in America. You just don't have the money to do it. Increasingly, Asian nations seem to strive for permanent trade surpluses, selling more than they're buying, and hoard their excess export earnings. Now, traditionally, you might think, what can America do? You know, we're getting further and further in debt, and we can't pay these debts back. We can't meet these bonds. We can't pay the Social Security system. Let's print more money. We've got printing presses. We'll run them day and night. Then what happens? Inflation begins to spiral. And pretty soon, you need a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread like it is in Turkey. I think it's, what, 40,000% inflation they've got over there, 20 or 40,000%. The number is meaningless. Meaningless, it's so high. That's what would happen here. Let's see. I don't want to read all of this, but this is pretty good. Since 1996, the foreign exchange reserves of some major Asian countries have jumped from about 500 billion to more than 1.3 trillion. In other words, they're selling more than they're buying, and their reserves are increasing in some cases. That doesn't keep going round and round. You know, if they got it in the sock over here, it doesn't keep going round and round and enriching people. And this is true throughout all those countries. These funds are typically left. Now, now, they've got this sack full of money. What do they do with it? 
These funds are typically left in safe investments. Well, I question the safe investment here, but that's what he's saying. Such as U.S. Treasury securities and bonds. That's where they're safe. And these are the figures from the International Monetary Fund, the, the increasing amount of trade surplus they have, and they're spending all this on U.S. Treasury bonds, or a lot of it. As a result, the trading system lacks circularity. The world don't go around, in other words, financially. Countries that sell don't automatically buy. Then he says, this is bad, very bad. The justification for tree, free trade is that everyone ultimately benefits. Countries do what they do best. Poor countries sell inexpensive labor-intensive goods, shoes, toys, clothes, to wealthy countries and buy sophisticated knowledge-intensive goods, jets, pharmaceuticals, industrial machinery, and so on. That's ideally what happens. And living standards in all countries rise. Some workers and in industries may temporarily lose, but most consumers benefit, and most workers are ultimately reemployed in trade-competitive industries. But that's not what's happening. I mean, ideally, that's the case. If too many countries hoard, the logic of free trade collapses. Trade can become an economic depressant and job destroyer. Too many sellers chase too few buyers. Do you feel bedraggled sometimes with all the advertisements that come at you? Buy this, buy that. If you just had this drug, that drug, and the other drug. I, I think it'd be interesting sometime to write down the number of drugs that are offered to you, to you in an hour of television. Buy all of them and take them all for a week and see if you can analyze what it did to you if you're living enough to do so. They call you on the phone at night, don't they? They're after you from everywhere to spin, spin, spin to keep things moving. But we can only spend so much. And the world is getting to the point it makes more than they can sell us. And then who do they blame? Because we won't buy it. Us. We're the bad guy because we won't buy their stuff. In the 1990s, the U.S. economic boom and the big trade deficits in other words, we borrowed the money back and kept spending it, postponed these pressures. But now the boom is over. The dollar has depreciated on foreign exchange markets, making American products more competitive, and the U.S. deficit shows signs of stabilizing. In other words, we're not buying as much or borrowing as much money. In June, it drops slightly. All right, what's the conclusion then? He says, a great, if silent, struggle has begun. For decades, expanding trade promoted global progress. It reduced poverty and spread prosperity. The words of Revelation 18. We spread prosperity around the world in the past years. But if the trading system can't solve its basic problem, that is, over-reliance on the United States market, it could foster political division 
and economic vulnerability for all, that is, the whole world. Trading patterns must become more balanced and sustainable. So this has to happen. Europe needs to grow faster. Latin America needs to dig out from its debts. Asia needs to stem its hoarding and become less dependent on export-led economic growth. Then he says, these changes might happen spontaneously. I'm spending 4000 a month. I'm making 2000 a month. I'm getting deeper and deeper in debt, and this may change spontaneously. Give me a break. But he goes on to say, these changes may occur spontaneously, or they might not. Japan provides a warning. Its economy hasn't diversified away from export dependence, and despite a huge trade surplus, has stagnated. Parochial politics, economic nationalism, cultural habits, and currency manipulation prevented change in Japan. They will not change the way they've done things. If the same thing happens elsewhere, the world may be stumbling toward a future of creeping protectionism, competitive devaluations, and discriminatory trade blocks. It is a troubling vision. End of article. We have made the world rich, and now they are so dependent upon us that if we quit buying, they will go under, and the whole economic system will go under. It gives me goosebumps down, up and down my back to realize that God said thousands of years ago that at the end time there would be a great financial crash and we would throw the gold and silver in the streets. And now we are staring right down the 12-gauge barrel of that very event. And we are the ones who will be blamed. We're the ones that they will cry over when this occurs because we are their market of first and last resort. Who has made the nations rich? Who are the merchants prepared to cry over when she falls? No one like the United States of America. Roman Catholic Church does not even enter into the picture at all along those terms. Neither does any other country you can name. And I think this article pointed that out very, very graphically. And I took time to go through it because it confirms everything that I've been telling you the last few weeks from an outside source who probably never reads the Bible, period. Maybe he does, I don't know but he certainly did not refer to it in any way. Pure economic circumstances. All right, now, we've, we've examined Revelation 17 18, and I think we're beginning to see some definitions form. And I want to go to some other scriptures which are very, very similar, but which add more in terms of definition. And some might say, well, 
those scriptures were written about ancient Israel and her fall at that time. Now remember, we've already talked about Ezekiel 16 being written 100 to 140 years after Israel's fall. So it was a prophecy for the future. Notice as we go now to Isaiah 47 and a couple of others, the extreme similarity between John's vision of the end time in the book of Revelation and the prophecies about Israel. Isaiah 47. It is almost as if John were not seeing a vision, but simply quoting from Isaiah 47. And another place that I'll go after this. He's talking here in chapter 46 about Israel. I think we need to establish this context because we're going to see some internal evidence in this chapter and another one we'll go to after this one that there is no way of unraveling Babylon and Israel. They are entwined together in these prophecies in such a way they cannot simply be separated. If you speak of one, you speak of the other. just like a rope that has been twisted together. Chapter 46. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden, or laden. They're a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. So the major gods of Babylon will have failed them. They will be under a heavy burden. Is America today, and this is speaking of commerce here, beasts of burden, commerce, maybe you could call it trucks, trains, planes, and boats today, but it's those who bear burdens of commerce, taking things to market. Bale's financial system has become a burden to it. Did we not just read that in a Newsweek article? Hearken to me, O house of Jacob. Now, what does Baal and Nebo have to do with Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb? He says, listen to me. There is a financial problem. Listen to me, God says. I've carried you from the belly, even to your old age, I am he. And even to whorehairs will I carry you, till you are old and gray, and about to die. I will carry you. Has God not blessed us as a result of Abraham's obedience? Have we not fulfilled, or have not the blessings been fulfilled in us that were given to Abraham? And have they not remained with us until our old age? as an empire, as an economy, as a people. As Hosea says, there are gray hairs upon us. We are getting old. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. Ultimately, not only is he going to see us in our old age, but he'll deliver us. Speaking to Jacob here, all the remnant of the house of Israel, what comes between now and that delivery are some real difficulties. 
To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They fall down, yes, they worship. So you've got a heavy financial burden yet you're still worshiping materiality. Israel, they fall down and worship the dollar. We even call it commonly in American slang, the almighty dollar. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. Carry your wallet where? If you've got a suit on, right next to your heart, where it belongs. And then some carry it in their hip pocket and sit on it. Maybe they don't carry it in quite the same degree of importance. But they do, don't they? That's your God, but you sit on it anyway. They carry him and set him in his place, and he stands. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry to him, yet can he not answer, and I'll save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O you transgressors. Realize the error of your ways, and whether you have taken yourselves by worshiping money. Remember the former things of old. He tells us, Jacob, all Israel, remember where you've been. Remember where you started. Remember how I delivered you. Remember me. I'm God up here. I made you. I blessed you. I gave you everything and you've forgotten me. Hey, look up here, God says. I'm still here. You're in trouble, but I'm here. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. He repeats it. Get it, he says. Can't you see this? I'm God. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God is going to see his plan through regardless of what man does or Satan does. He says, I am the eternal. I can do what I say I will do. But you can't, Jacob. Not without me. I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executes my counsel from a far country. He's going to turn a ravenous bird loose on us. Yes, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Hearken to me, you stout-hearted that are far from righteousness. Yeah, you'll stand up and say, I'm proud, and I'm proud to be an American, but you're far from righteous. That's our problem as a people, and it's our problem as a church. Physical and spiritual Israel. I bring near my righteousness that shall not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Zion is the church, Zion is a place. He continues the thought now. He's talking here, he mentions Baal, he talks to Israel, and he continues the thought. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, 
sit on the ground. He's taking, talking to Jacob here, and yet he addresses Babylon. Perhaps Babylon and Israel are entwined. Perhaps Israel has forsaken the true God whom he's calling to listen to him and gone after pagan gods, the gods of Babylon. Is that a possibility? Didn't we talk about the pagan things that are in New York and in Washington, D.C., and talk about the Christmas trees and Easter eggs that are under everyone's tree and in their yard every year? Have we gone Babylonian or not? Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Now how have Americans looked upon their country? We're not old like Europe. We're not old like Asia. We are a young lady portrayed by a Statue of Liberty with a young lady handing out the Olympic sun-worshipping torch to the world. That's the way we portray ourselves. But he says, you're never going to be called a young virgin anymore. Take the millstones and grind meal. In other words, go to work. Do menial labor. Take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover your locks. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. That's not the Mississippi and the Missouri. That's speaking of female anatomy. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance. I will not meet you as a man. You aren't worth my attention as a man, God says. You're a harlot. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. See how this is entwined together? He addresses Babylon, and then right in the middle of it, he's talking to Israel. When he addresses Israel, he's talking to Babylon. When he talks to Babylon, he's addressing Israel, because the two today in the end time are simply inseparable. Sit you silent and get you into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. Reminds you of Revelation 18, doesn't it? I sit a queen. Same language. I was wrathful with my people. I have polluted my inheritance and given them into your hand. God's people have been given into the hand of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Brethren, we, as Americans, as Israelites, are slaves to Babylon. We have a Babylonian government. We have Babylonian customs. We have Babylonian language. We have Babylonian culture. We have become Babylon. Our blood is Israelite. Our culture, our society, our thinking is Babylonian. The two are inseparable today. He's talking about his people. Was Nebuchadnezzar, was ancient Babylon ever considered God's people? No way on earth. 
Israel has been. He set Israel aside as his people. He said he was angry with his people and has polluted that inheritance and given them into Babylon's hand. This is an end-time prophecy. It uses the same language Revelation 18 does. You did show them no mercy. How long did you work this year before you began to be able to keep your money? I can remember when they said you worked until sometime in April until the money was yours. It went to taxes before that. This year was somewhere in the middle of July. Over half the year you work before the money becomes yours. When you take into account local, city, uh, county, state, federal taxes, gas taxes, food taxes, all the taxes we pay, you work till about the middle of July this year before you had a dime you could call your own. Have they showed us mercy? When you go to the bank and you borrow money, do they show you mercy? Or do they tax interest on there? How many times do you pay for your house if you borrow the money to buy it? Approximately three and one-half times. You pay the principal once and two and a half times the purchase price in interest, roughly speaking, depending on interest rate, length of loan, and so on. And if you get behind on your payments at all, you pay a whole lot more times than that. They have showed no mercy. Upon the ancient have you laid, have you very heavily laid your yoke. And you said, I shall be a lady forever. America the proud. Unassailable, powerful, strong, leader of the world. So that you did not lay these things to your heart. Neither did you remember the latter end of it. We just didn't consider, did we, where it was all leading. As our government spent more and more and more money, far more than it was taking in in taxes, didn't care about the end time. Whoever was in office just wanted to be reelected, Congress, President, whoever. They don't care about you and me. Therefore, hear now this, you that are given to pleasures, that dwell carelessly. I don't know that you can say that truly about the Catholic Church. Are they given to pleasures? Well, at least not by doctrine. The monks are supposed to, some of them have a vow of silence, vows of poverty, vows of celibacy. The nuns have vows of celibacy. Their whole priesthood, man and woman, is supposed to be celibate. Now, they don't live up to their commitment a lot of times, but that's their doctrine. That is not a liberal lifestyle. When you are a Catholic baby, and you begin to grow up, you are taught that sex is the original sin and that it is an evil, dirty, fill, and foul, and filthy thing. As a girl, you were told by those nuns in the Catholic school, perhaps by your parents, that your body is a filthy thing. That is drummed into your head year after year after year. 
and you're told that a sexual relationship is there only for procreation, that you should only do that like cows do, about once a year to have a calf, or every two or three years as humans to have children. That's what you're taught. You're taught that your body is filthy and should never be seen. I've talked to Catholics along those lines. We had a deacon in one church that I pastored one time who had been married to his wife for, I think at that time, about 35, maybe 40 years. And she herself said, I grew up in a Catholic school, and she was an orphan. They taught her that her body was evil, foul, and filthy. Not a beautiful creation of God, but evil. And to that day, her husband had never seen her body. When it came bedtime, she put on a granny gown that covered her from neck to ankles, got in bed, turned out all the lights, and said, now you can come to bed, honey. Because she felt she was foul, evil, and filthy. That was religious teaching. That's what basically all Catholic girls are taught. If they're real Catholics. Maybe they don't do it as much in the United States as they do elsewhere, but this girl will go up in the United States. And if they have a chance to teach you those things, they will do so. I don't call that liberal given to pleasures. The Catholic Church simply cannot be penciled in here. That dwell carelessly. But say in your heart, I am and none else beside me. I don't think you can say in, in many respects the Catholic Church uh, dwells carelessly. They are very careful about what they believe. And they're very careful with their money, and they won't give you any of it. And they certainly won't make you rich. They'll take your money away from you if they have half a chance. That says in your heart, I am and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. Now, the Catholics might say that. I'll give you that. Anybody who's on top says, I'll not be taken down. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. Remember, Revelation said, in an hour. Very short period of time. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. Now, we like to think of ourselves as a young, vigorous country, a virgin daughter. But he says, you'll no longer be called that. You will lose your children, and you will have widowhood. No one to take care of you, in other words. upon you in their perfection for the multitude of your sorceries and for your great abundance of your enchantments. Didn't we read that in Revelation 18? Same language. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, none sees me. Isn't that the way American business and government operates today? Nobody knows what's going on. We're in wrong. No. They won't catch us. We're MCI. We're Microsoft. Their worms can't get us. Computer worms. 
your wisdom and your knowledge, it has perverted you. Who has more knowledge of technical things than America? No one. Does the Catholic Church? Give me a break. They still run around with candles muttering with their funny little robes. Now, maybe the Jesuits are a different story, but they're a specific trained group of people out to destroy the government that is in the world and to set up their own. Have we been perverted? Has our society been perverted by the technical knowledge that we have gained in the last 50 years, 100 years? Are we more perverted than we used to be? You know, used to you weren't supposed to have sex with men, a man if you were a man or a woman if you were a woman. In Canada, you weren't supposed to marry each other if you weren't were of the same sex. Now you can. Now it's legal all across America to have sodomy. Homosexuality is legal. You just can't quite marry yet, but it won't be long. And the U.S. Supreme Court overruled the Alabama people who are trying to keep the Ten Commandments in the Capitol. Can't have it there. Yeah, we're perverted. And you've said in your heart, I am and none else beside me. I am the greatest. Therefore shall evil come upon you. What comes before a fall? Pride. Therefore shall evil come upon you. You shall not know from where it comes. We're going to be hit with destruction so fast it will take us by absolute surprise. We won't know where it comes from. Now remember, the beast and the false prophets are still alive and many people with them in Revelation 19 when Christ comes and drops them in a fire. But the harlots will be dead by then. So whoever this Babylon harlot is, is going to have sudden destruction. Now I'm not saying the Catholic Church and the Protestants don't come to play in the end time prophecies. We'll get to them later. There's another beast that describes them pretty well. But this harlot does not describe them. You'll not even know where this comes from. It's going to happen so fast. And mischief shall, mischief shall fall upon you. You shall not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. 911 kind of hit us as a shocker, didn't it? That's just a preliminary. That's just an opening salvo. That's just shot number one. We scurried around to figure out where it came from. We decided it must come from the place we wanted a pipeline to be run. Now I'm being cynical. But if that was sudden, the overall destruction will also come suddenly, in the same fashion. We got up that morning, looked at our TV screen, and we saw the destruction. When this other one comes, we may jump up, turn on the TV, and not see it. 
might not be able to be broadcasted. It's a blank screen. Stand now with your enchantments, verse 12, and with the multitude of your sorceries wherein you have labored from your youth. He tells us this paganism, Babylonianism, demonism, Satan worship goes all the way back to our beginnings if we're this great whore. It's right there in the streets of Washington. It's right there in our national monuments. If so be that you shall be able to profit, if so be you may prevail. You think you can win this one, he says? Stand up now and let's hear your sorceries. Let's hear your projections. Let's hear all the talk about military might. Let's hear all the talk about how we'll develop pills that will make us live forever. And we can have us an organ farm and grow ourselves new hearts and livers and kidneys. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from these things that shall come upon you. What do Americans do? Millions and millions of Americans every day run out and grab the newspaper and read what? Their horoscope first. They don't read the front page. They don't even read the financial page. They run to the horoscope. You meet an American on a plane, a truss, in a bar. What's the first thing he asks you? What's your sign? We're going to get along? We're both Pisces or not? Got to know your sign. Millions and millions of them. Going to tell, her, tell your fortune. You know, I can tell you what's going to happen to you today or this month based on your astrological sign. Absolute demonism. I avoid reading that. And I've always avoided reading my own in particular. I do not want to know what Satan has cooked up for me today. I want to draw near God and resist the devil so that he will flee from me. I don't want to read what he has to say about me. But a lot of Americans do. Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. We're going to have an energy shortage, or what? Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored. Well, wait a minute now. Are we going to have an energy shortage, or are we not? Did we not have last week a tremendous energy pro problem? Biggest one we've ever had in the Northeast. Biggest power failure ever. Right now, this very day, as I stand here, they're paying up to $4 a gallon for gas in Phoenix, Arizona, just south of the canyon here below us. You can still get it for three if you can get it in some places. There was a picture in USA Today yesterday of a gasoline pump, $3.97, Phoenix, Arizona, because of a broken pipeline. I suppose that is the problem. I don't believe much of what I see or hear anymore because we've been lied to and lied to and lied to. There shall not be a coal to warm at nor fire to sit before it. Better move to Arizona or somewhere where it doesn't get too cold, I guess. That was a political statement. Forgive me, I'll move on. Thus shall I be to you with whom you have labored, even your merchants, Draws it right back to Revelation 18. 
all about merchants back here, from thy youth. They shall wander every one to his quarter, none shall save you. Everybody's going to say, the harlot is falling, back off, get away. Doesn't it say in Revelation that they'll stand far back and bewail their falling? This is the same, same stuff all the way through. Whether it's an absolute end-time prophecy that no one could argue about, or one back here that says the exact same thing and obviously ties in with Revelation 17 and 18. I'm not going into chapter 48 now for a particular reason because I want to come back. Well, I don't know. Let's hit it a little bit. It's talking about Israel here. It talks about how Babylon is mixed in with Israel. Didn't we just read that here in chapter 47? Go on to chapter 48. Hear you this, not a change of subject, talking about your, your merchants from your youth, and they'll wander everyone to his quarter, and none shall save you. They don't care about this harlot. When she falls, she falls. Get out of the way, because she might hit you. And then he says, Hear you this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord, we are a Christian nation, we'll say, and make mention of the God of Israel, make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. A godly nation, so-called, without God. For they call themselves of the holy city, and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name, I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them, I did them suddenly, and they came to pass. Didn't he say just now the destruction was going to come on Israel suddenly? He said on Babylon, suddenly. I mean, it's, it's back and forth here. Babylon, Israel, Babylon, Israel. They are intertwined together in these scriptures. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck is in an iron sinew, and your brow is brass. Will we not call stiff-necked and rebellious in another place? I have even from the beginning declared it you. Before it came to pass, I showed it. He's showing us right here what's about to come to pass with the harlot. And remember, he calls Israel a great harlot and a mother of harlots in Ezekiel 16. God tells what he's going to do. I'm going to skip on down here a little bit. Well, verse 10, he says, Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Both the church spiritually, spiritual Israel, and now, very shortly, physical Israel, are going to be chosen in the furnace of affliction. Then skip down to verse 14. All you assemble yourselves and listen. Which among them has declared these things? Where are you going to hear this? The Lord has loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. Now how did we get this change of subject in here? He was talking to Israel all the way through this chapter, wasn't he? Now by English grammar rules, he cannot now start talking about Babylon without changing the subject. And the subject hasn't changed. 
So therefore, he must be talking about one and the same. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arms shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, God says, have spoken. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come you near to me, hear you this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time of it, that it was. There am I, and now the Lord God in his spirit has sent me. So God sent Isaiah to tell these things. To let us know ahead of time that they would happen. Now, let's move on down a little bit. Verse 18. Oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Then had your peace been as, the, as a river, and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. Your seed also had been as the sand and the offspring of your bowels like the gravel thereof. He's talking here, again, about Israel entwined with Babylon. If you just obeyed me instead of following Babylonian traditions and pagan doctrines, Then what does he say? Verse 20. Go you forth out of Babylon. Flee you from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare you. Tell this. Utter it even to the end of the earth. Say you. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. He tells Israel who is entwined with Babylon. Get out of her. Did you read that in Revelation 18.4? Wow. He says he will redeem us. Verse 21, And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He recalls what happened to ancient Israel when they came out of Egypt. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the eternal, to the wicked. What he is saying in this end-time prophecy in Revelation 18, in Isaiah 47 and 48, is, get out of Babylon, my people, I will take care of you. Have I not taken care of your ancestors? I will also take care of you. I am your redeemer, says the eternal. You have to walk out by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. If we are to please him, then, we must walk in faith doing what he tells us to do. He tells us to get out of Babylon. We will put some more scriptures together with that. I didn't want to get into that heavily today, but the context flowed on through, and I felt like I almost had to go ahead and bring that up to show you how the two are inclined so closely together. Now, let's leave Isaiah for now and go to Jeremiah 50. I'll pick up a verse in Jeremiah 49, verse 39, the last verse of chapter 49 of Jeremiah. He's talking here in this chapter about problems that will come to Ammon and Edom and so on. 
But notice the time frame. That's what I want to pick up in verse 39. It shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, says the Eternal. So Jeremiah is writing prophecies for the latter days. Now let's get into chapter 50. Because there are burdens or woes or curses or punishments. That's what a burden is. Pronounced upon various peoples. This particular one in chapter 50, 51, has to do with Babylon. The subject we broached in Revelation 17 and 18. The word that the Eternal spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans. So it's not just a city, but it's the whole shooting match. Country, empire, whatever size it is. As far as that influence reaches. By Jeremiah the prophet. Declare you among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken. Baal is confounded. Merodach, God of the Babylons, but Babylonians, is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. Perhaps we need to find a way to get this message to a wider audience than who is on this phone today and in this room. I don't know that I know exactly how to go about it, but this is a message that needs to be published among the peoples, something that needs to be spread. A warning that needs to be given. We might ought to be thinking about that. For out of the north there comes up a nation against her, which shall make her land desolate, and none shall dwell therein. They shall remove, they shall depart, both man and beast. Interesting, my Bible, there's a title at the top of the page, says, The Judgment of Babylon and Redemption of Israel. These two are tied together here, intertwined again. You'll see that as we go on. Terrible destruction coming out of the north. Uh, Babylon, really, in juxtaposition with ancient Israel, was to the north and was called one of those from the north. But these peoples have changed, and now even Babylon is going to have Destroyers come from the north. The north, basically, in Old Testament prophecies and on Old Testament maps, if you please, had all the Gentile kingdoms north of Israel, for the most part, except for the Egyptian Empire, which didn't amount to much at that time. The troubles came from the north. So understand today that wherever Israel is, it's going to be those same Gentile peoples that inhabited the areas of the north who come against her. Verse 4, In those days and in that time, says the Eternal, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping they shall go, and seek the Lord their God. Before this is all over, people will begin to seek God. Isn't that why he gives sins the tribulation? To force people to give up their gods and begin to look to the true God. That's the whole purpose of all this end-time trouble. That's the whole purpose of the end-time trouble upon the church, is to get us to quit focusing on materiality, 
our things, our money, our pleasures, and focus on God. There are a lot of people in the church of God today who are looking up and saying, God, why is all this happening? Why is all this happening, they ask. And they ask each other and they come up with answers. But very few of them open the Bible and find the answers which are here. They're all in here. Every answer to what has happened to the church is right here. Do you think for a moment God would allow this to happen to his church and it would surprise him and us both? No, it surprised us. It didn't surprise him. He wrote it years ago, thousands of years ago. Brought it to pass. We'll see in a moment. This isn't talking about the millennium necessarily anyway. Now, when you read that one verse, it almost sounds that way, doesn't it? But let's go on and see what the context is. This is before the fall of Babylon. This is premillennial. See, it's talking about the destruction of Babylon, which is about to come. Verse 5, They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces pointed there, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the eternal in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. They're going to point their heads toward Zion, wherever that may be. Verse 6, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains, and they have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Did we not go from a large church, a mountain, to hills? Smaller and smaller and smaller organizations. Have we not forgotten our resting place in worldwide where we were comfortable? We thought we were doing fine. We sat beside still waters and thought we had a ticket punched to the kingdom of God with the ticket before that to the place of safety. All that have found them have devoured them. Aren't the churches and organizations still devouring people? Isn't the message still pray, pay, and stay in most organizations today? All that have found them have devoured them. Sounds like Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and the book of Malachi all over again. And their adversaries said, We offend not, because they have sinned against the Lord. If we persecute them, if we give them trouble, no skin off our back, they deserve it. They deserve it. Because they've sinned against the eternal, the habitation of justice, even the eternal, the hope of their fathers. Now, Whomever he's talking to here, whether it be physical Israel or spiritual Israel, or ultimately both, what does he tell Israel to do? Remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he-goats before the flocks. Take your pick. Is it talking about the church? Is it talking about physical Israel? It says get out of the middle of Babylon. No matter what you are, physical Israelite or physical and spiritual Israelite, get out of the middle of Babylon. 
Now sheep cannot find their way. They must be led by a shepherd, or in some cases, the shepherd appoints goats to lead them. A goat in the Bible is not looked upon with a great deal of kindness. A sheep is more innocent. A sheep is more vulnerable. A sheep is more humble. A goat isn't a pushy. It butts and shoves. It can survive alone in the wilderness. So be careful about being a goat. We are described as sheep throughout the New Testament. But there comes a time, brethren, where God says, be as a billy goat, if you will. And get the flock out of Babylon. Don't be like a sheep. Be as a he goat. For, lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. Now this may begin to explode our view of ten little nations or ten kings in Europe in the traditional way we thought of who will come against the U.S., Britain, and other Israelite countries. We have a problem in that there are not ten nations there or ten kings. There are now 15 and going to 25 this year. There's only roughly 200 nations on earth, and 25 of them are already now joining together. Now, they may be led by the Assyrian because the Assyrian is the rod of God's anger. But this is going to be, I think, a lot bigger than we ever envisioned before. And we will get to that later. I don't want to get into it now, or at least not deeply. Because we've got to also define who the beast is of Revelation 13, and the second beast of Revelation 13. So kind of put that in the back of your mind. We'll get to that. For lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, Gentiles predominantly then, and they shall set themselves in array against her. Now, if this is defined as America, this harlot Babylon, they're coming against our country. Okay? From thence she shall be taken, their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert man. None shall return in vain. Now, does it not say in prophecies specifically to Israel that a third will be taken with famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and the rest taken into captivity, and a sword come after them, Ezekiel 5. So this judgment on Babylon is very similar to the judgment specifically given to Israel. And it tells Israel, be it spiritual or physical, to get out of the middle of Babylon before Babylon's destruction begins. Therefore, whichever Israel God is talking about here is in the midst of Babylon. Got it? And Chaldea shall be a spoil. All that spoil her shall be satisfied, says the Eternal. They're going to take great satisfaction in coming in and destroying this harlot 
which I believe is America today, the leader of Israel. But it will include other Israelites. We may be the head of Israel today, but the rest of the body also has to go into captivity. Verse 11, because you were glad, because you rejoiced, O you destroyers of my heritage. Who was God's heritage? Israel. Who is destroying Israel? Babylon, the Babylonian system. It has us by the throat. We do everything it says. We watch its movies. We watch its sitcoms. We buy its goods. We buy its drugs. We buy its clothes. We do everything Babylon tells us to do. What does that make you? A slave. You do what they tell you to do. You dwell in their middle. You listen to your peers who listen to Satan via the Babylonian system. A system which includes our government. O oh, you destroyers of my heritage, because you were grown fat as a he the heifer at grass and bellow as bulls. Or as Isaiah said, you're like well-fed horses that neigh after your neighbor's wives. We're fat, we're sassy, in other words. The Catholic Church right now is in trouble financially. I don't think this refers to them. Now, we are in trouble financially, too. We just don't know it yet. We're still fat and sassy. And don't know that we're broke. It hasn't hit home yet. Your mother shall be sore confounded. She that bear you shall be ashamed. Behold, the hindermost of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the eternal, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goes by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at all her plagues. All that jealousy and hate that they have felt for America, they are going to laugh sarcastically and point the finger and say, yeah, you're so proud. It can't happen there. Oh, yeah, okay, tell us about it. Verse 14, put yourselves in array against Babylon round about. All you that bend the bow, shoot at her, spare no arrows. Any military on earth, God says, come on, we're going to have a feast. Come shoot your arrows at Babylon. For she has sinned against the eternal. Are we a righteous, godly nation? There's no way you could call this a Christian nation. We are barely a Christian church much less a Christian nation. And I say barely because we became Laodicean, didn't we? And that was totally unpalatable to God, <laughs> he said. Or actually, <laughs> and that's where we are today as a church. Shout against her roundabout, verse 15. She has given her hand. 
Do our leaders betray us, brethren? She has given her hand. Here, take me. I'm yours. There's a harlot for you. I think our leaders will betray us. I think they already are. I think that this harlot is already riding the beast. We are riding whoever will lay down for us around this world. And if they won't lay down for us, we lay them down, don't we? She's given her hand. Her foundations are fallen. Her walls are thrown down. That's talking about your military protection. You built walls around a city anciently to protect yourself from invaders. What did Bill Clinton do when he was in office? He closed base after base, shut down our military, put planes, ships, and mothballs, almost dismantled it. All we have left is smart bombs, basically. And we are spreading our military right now under Bush, and we're closing bases right now as I speak around the world, and moving them to more strategic locations. We're moving them out of Europe. We're moving them into uh, the Balkans. Here and there around the world, we are changing the way we have traditionally done business militarily. We are rolling over like a dog and saying, my belly is exposed. I do believe our own leaders are betraying us because they are Babylonian and we are Israelites. She has given her hand, her foundations are fallen, her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the eternal. Take vengeance upon her as she has done, do unto her. If she has bombed others, bomb her. Do to her what she did to Vietnam, to Afghanistan, to the Balkans, to Somalia, to you name it, Iraq, Afghanistan. The list goes on and on. Do to her as she has done unto others. Isn't that what God says? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We bombed, we're going to get bombed. And you say, how could this happen quickly? These other countries don't even really have a military yet. Europe is just now beginning to get together a little military force so they can send three dozen soldiers down to the Middle East. Now, if you give your hand and you tear down your own walls, how much do they really need to destroy you? And what if you send them the codes and tell them you have 15 minutes to direct all those nuclear-tipped missiles from Russia to the United States? All they have to do, they have the technology that can swing those things around, our own missiles, and shoot them at us. If our leaders betray us, it doesn't take 10 more years, 20 more years, for Europe to build a military. All they have to do is call Washington and say, we're ready to shoot these missiles at you. What's the targeting code? It can happen in an instant, suddenly. When you least expect it, it can happen. I was not expecting those towers to fall in New York the morning they fell. 
Marla happened to be watching the news and said, you need to come watch this. All right, verse 16. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him that handles the sickle in the time of harvest. This is talking about agriculture. Don't let them plant. Don't let them harvest. For fear of the oppressing sword, they shall turn every one to his people, and they shall flee every one to his own land. Babylon has been overrun with a lot of people from a lot of different places. And they're going to see all this happening, and where are they going to go? Man, if they're coming across the border from Mexico today, what's their little behinds go back across the border when they see this start happening? If they're coming in on planes and ships and floating in on rafts from Cuba, watch them find a raft and head out of here in a hurry. Rats leaving a sinking ship. We have been a melting pot. We'll read about that a little later on, I think, in the next chapter. Well, no, it's in this chapter. They shall flee everyone to his own land when they see this destruction begin to happen here. Now, right here in this burden or judgment of Babylon, notice interestingly verse 17. Israel is a scattered shape. It's talking about destroying Babylon and scattering Babylon, and it says Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria has devoured him, and last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Now this is a reference to history in that Assyria came and took the northern ten tribes captive. And then later, Nebuchadnezzar came and took Judah captive. But it's something that's going to be repeated. Babylon rules us. Babylon is going to destroy us. They will turn us over to their New World Order friends and make us pray. The Assyrian will be involved, and our own Babylonian government will be involved, along with an assembly of great nations from the North Country, we've already read about in verse 9. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead, but not until he has been scattered, taken captive, and basically destroyed. The church will not be blessed until it has been destroyed, and it almost has been. And physical Israel will not be blessed in the millennium until after they have been destroyed, and only a remnant remains. Either way, in those days and in that time, says eternally, iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. Doesn't God say he's going to forgive us in one day, in another place? I think it's in Isaiah. Speaking of spiritual Israel, God is going to turn and smile and begin to bless the church again once the remnant has been drawn out and been shown to be faithful. He is going to smile and bless us as we have never been blessed before. And when the millennium comes, he's going to do the same thing with physical Israel. 
I'll look for the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. God will reserve and preserve some in the church, spiritual Israel. Pray that you will be counted worthy to escape these things. And he will also save a 10% minus a little remnant of physical Israel for the millennium. He'll do both. God will pardon those whom he reserves. Go up against the land of Meratheum, even against it and against the inhabitants of Pecod. Waste and utterly destroy after them, says the Eternal, and do according to all that I have commanded you. I didn't look those cities up, but I'm sure that they were in the land of Babylon. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. Now here is a very interesting point in defining who the end-time Babylon is. Verse 23. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken. How has Babylon become a desolation among the nations? That's a big question. How could the hammer of the whole earth be cut asunder and broken? You know, there are people today around the world who are trying to figure out a way to destroy the hammer of the whole earth. They want a coalition against America. Can you say for a moment that the Catholic Church is the hammer of the whole earth? Does the Catholic Church go anywhere it wants to on earth and hammer on anybody it wants to hammer? Now, if I had myself a sledgehammer here, you know, weighs about 10 pounds, I've only got five minutes, I better wrap this up. And I just went through here, you're defenseless, I've got the hammer. I can just hammer on anybody I want to. If you all head for the door, then I could hammer on whoever was left behind, couldn't I? Because you don't have any hammers, and I got the hammer. I got a hammer. I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening. I'd hammer all over this world. Some of you remember that song. We hammer wherever we wish. And I can give you a long list of nations we've hammered. Quick, somebody give me a list of nations that the Catholics have hammered in the last 10 years, last 50 years. None. None. There is no nation, there is no church that fits this definition of verse 23. There's no way of getting around it. America today at the end time is the hammer of the whole earth. There is not a nation on this earth that we could not decide tomorrow to go hammer and not get the job done. You realize that? Who is there that we could not hammer with our smart bombs, with our nuclear weapons? China? There's billions of them. <laughs> it wouldn't take very big or very many nuclear weapons to hammer China into absolute submission, would it? There's not a nation on earth today that we can't hammer if we so choose to do. And we often do. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How has Babylon become a desolation among the nations? I have laid a snare for you, and you also are taken, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You were found and also caught because you have striven against the eternal. God is going to bring this judgment. We think we are invulnerable. 
We think that we can destroy anyone, and we can. But somehow, some way, it's going to be turned on us, and we are going to be absolutely destroyed suddenly and not know from whence it comes. It's going to rain fire and death on America, just like it rained it on the church, and we sit around and said, man, where did that come from? Physical Israel is going to have the very same reaction. Well, that's a good place to stop, and we'll pick it up there next time.